K, the new Negro. Oh, what's good, everybody? It's your boy, Jamie K, the new Negro. We back again with the third episode of Raise Your Voice under two really dope dudes. And so my man, McDonald, tell them who you are. Yeah, what's good, man? This McDonald, man, I go by King Ferto. Y'all can call me that from now on, right? Uh, but yeah, man, I'm excited about this joint, man. So yeah, this is two really dope dudes. All right, so yo, McDonald, man, last week the internet was lit. Uh, people were still commenting about it. I got some real dope music from some individuals. Big shout out to uh, Show Baraka. He commented on, yeah. you know, us making mention of him in regards to Islam and Christianity. So, mm -hmm. um, yo, man, I'm, I'm excited about what's been happening. Yeah, for sure, man. I think uh, last week's conversation was definitely. Uh, an eye opener for me, at least, because, you know, I'm limited in scope as far as my exposure to Christian hip hop. And maybe it is my naivete, if, if that if I could use that word, as far as being exposed to a wider range of um, of music that does tackle some of the issues that we talk about. So I guess there are some artists out there more underground than mainstream that are, uh, you know, uh, uh, putting that type of content out there. So I stand corrected. <laughs> Yo, facts, man, because, um, you know, and then the thing that I really wanted people to know is that like there what I was really trying to what we were what I was really trying to focus on and what we got to was just understanding that there are two different classes of Christian hip hop. Like right. you got the mainstream ones versus the ones that's going hard, like the show Baracas and the Lecrae's, you know, and I was kind of really just talking about the chances, the, the Kanye's and the ones that have been really monopolizing off of it. Right. And just showing the difference between them and the others. So. So, yeah, man, that was dope. That was dope. Yeah. Yeah. So look, man. So today we we have a, a discussion that I'm actually excited about because um, this kind of really talk about um, it's interesting because it just so happens to be the field that my brother decided to uh, pursue. And I think that was probably what kind of made it more of something that I would even expose myself to as a result of a result of that, not simply because, you know, I have issues, but because he shed a different spin or a different light on it that made it more appealing to a person like me that would have never considered, uh, considered, you know, mental health on any level. Right. So I got a few questions that I want to uh, start off with. And um, so Matt, you know, these are going to come at you randomly. So I hope that you prepared uh, but so the first thing out the gate, like, why why should I, as a black man, give a damn about mental health to begin with? Uh, that's a great question to start with, you know. Um, so let, let's go backwards, because I like to go backwards to go forward to get uh, some clarity. on. Let me just talk about how I got into the field and what made it relevant for me first, because, you know, you and I grew up in the same home. And mental health wasn't a word that I heard until probably college. And so it wasn't, we, we weren't necessarily exposed to it, but I got caught wind to psychology in high school when I was studying a course called Law Study with a uh, professor, call him professor, cause he was just that dope at, at Central, Mr. Pacheco, Henry Pacheco. You right, remember? yeah, yeah, yeah. He was teaching a course called Law Study and we had to do a mock trial where I had to represent a psychiatrist defending a woman who murdered her husband. 
they got me already. I'm, I'm in, you know. So, <laughs> uh, and it was random too. I selected the name out of a hat at random. And uh, you have to study about the case, of course, study about the character you're playing. And I'm studying this case and I came across a term called learned helplessness. Learned helplessness was a word that I've never heard before. And when you hear the two words together, it sounds like they're not supposed to be together. How do you learn how to be helpless, right? And so I'm doing the research to make sense of all of this. And then I came across the example of why this lady has have this terminology applied to her. Uh, she had been in an abusive relationship with her husband for X amount of years, more verbal, psychological, and emotional than anything. Probably no physical abuse. Uh, but it was so bad that when the cops got to the house and found her murdered husband, uh, she called the cops on herself. But when the cops got there, there was no blood. The murder weapon was right next to the husband. The husband was fully dressed. His wounds were already dressed with bandages and everything like that. The cops were baffled. They could not understand why this did not look like a crime scene, but yet this, this, this lady called the cops on herself to report that she had murdered her husband. Uh, and in the case files, they found out that the lady had separated the hangers in the closet half an inch. So every hanger in the closet was half an inch. Everything to, to was, was to tight specificity. And so the cops asked her, why is the house so clean? And, you know, you're calling for a murder. We don't understand. And her response blew me. Her response was, I had to make sure the house was in order before guests came to the house. Wow. Mm, He's already wow. murdered on the bed. And she's wow. still psychologically attached to his scrutiny based on her conditioning. So learn wow. helpful is a term that came from uh, Piaget. Piaget is a, re is a psychologist that did research on animals. And what he did to uh, you know, come across the term learned helplessness was from conditioning. He, he put a dog in a cage about three feet by three feet. And uh, the dog is able to jump out at any time if it wanted to. So he gave the dog a mild shock. The dog will automatically jump out, right? Of course, no, no dog, no, no person, no animal would want to stay in a condition where they're getting shocked. So the dog will automatically jump out. He did that enough to where that became a regular behavior then tethered the dog, put a collar around the dog, make sure the dog could not jump, proceeded to shock the dog again. The dog attempted to jump out, but got pulled back down. Attempt to jump out, but get pulled back down again over and over until the dog was not responding at all. So now he shocked the dog beyond the dog actually taking any course of action at all. You know, So now the dog gets released from the collar, right? Has the ability to jump out. Dog gets shocked. The dog doesn't move. The dog wow. has now been conditioned to learn how to live and accept a helpless situation, learned helplessness. And then it just, it blew my mind. I'm like, I'm in love right now. You know, I fell in love with psychology. Yeah. In fact, my, my first rap name was Big Psych <laughs> <laughs> because of psychology. And then when I got to college, I, I, I declared for psychology and I eventually studied family therapy and it helped me understand myself, you know. It helped me understand myself. And so I, I got free from going to therapy later in life, you know, from, from the household I grew up in, the, the, the environment I grew up in did a number on us. And so up until I got to Oakwood was when I first went to therapy for myself. And so I pledged to myself as I became a therapist that I wanted to change the narrative of what therapy, what psychology is to us. So to answer your question, Donald, why is this important for a black man such as yourself to go to therapy? Well, Therapy is one of those things that's interconnected. Your mental health is one of those things that's interconnected with the whole of you, right? Mm -hmm. Mental health is the mental, the emotional, and the physical. The three are intertwined. So if one goes down, the other two 
is right after that. You know, so if your physical health is not doing well, your emotional and your and your uh, mental health will suffer. If your mental health is not doing well, your physical and your emotional, all of them are intertwined. So when we neglect the mental health, we're neglecting our holistic health. So it's important for black men to get in there, get their mind right, because the emotions in the body will follow shortly after. So, oh. so, so Matt, so Matt, Matt, I love everything you said, right? But check this out. I'm a man of faith. I go to church every yes, week. Sir. I just got to pray, bro. Preach. Come on now. That's it, man. Jesus Jesus fixes it all, man. Like, Jesus so, walks, so, man. What, I love it. That's right. So what, what is your response to that? Because, you know, there are a lot of people in our community. And when I right. say community, I'm talking about African-Americans yeah. who, you know, uh, see, if you say you've seen a therapist, the first thing they're going to say is, you crazy? You lack know, and, and then, you know, the, or the other answer is, the other answer is pray about it. So what 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 do you how do you respond to, to that? Wow, man. Great question. And uh so my response is making sure that you have the buy-in of the um clergy members first, right? You know, the mm. church has been a pivotal part of the African American story in the United States, faith-based everything, you know. And right. so because it is a staple, you have to have the buy-in. <laughs> of the clergyman, you know, and fortunate for me, when I went to Oakwood, I studied theology and psychology. So I, I kind of know how, uh, you know, at least in the Seventh-day Adventist faith, how they move. And so I took all the courses with, you know, a lot of the pastors that are in the field right now. Uh, and I understand that there is a limit. There is a specific capacity to a pastor. I love my pastors. I love my brothers that are in the field. But if they don't go that extra mile to get equipped to be a professional counselor or a pastoral counselor, then they're not equipped to do the things that sometimes we ask them to do. And so I feel that the church is a great resources, but it's definitely limited what the pastor can do, what the bishop can do, what the elder can do. We have to sometimes learn how to defer. And that's important. So in order to fix that, I think we have to have the buy-in of pastors, of bishops, of clergy members, making sure that they understand how mental health is relevant for them first, right? One of the horrible things about this thing is that if as a pastor, we're not going out and saying, hey, mental health is important, mental health is important. And my brother and I, we grew up in the church, you know what I'm saying? This is not something we've heard. This was not something I heard ever sitting in the church from growing up in the Bahamas, coming to Miami and Tallahassee, at Oakwood, you know, I was at Oakwood was my first experience because I remember going to Madison Mission. Pastor James Doggett, dude had a he had a he had a mental health he had a mental health branch in the church, you know. So that was something new for me. And I think with the buy-in of the person that's the that's that's at the top, then of course they can prescribe that they can know when to defer. This is out of my capacity, out of my scope scope of uh, of. of um, of knowledge, I got to refer you to a professional. So with that buy-in, uh, I tell people to to pray. Definitely pray, pray for a good therapist. That's what you need to pray. <laughs> yeah, yo, yo, I'm with you, man. I'm with you. I'm, I I believe everybody needs to sit on a couch, right? And you know, at some point, because um, we all face trauma. But something you said um really resonated with me, and this is this is why pastors don't encourage it because we're not encouraged to seek yes. mental health yeah. as leaders wow. and you know and and we're in positions where people dump a lot of stuff on us man and we don't have anywhere to dump that stuff off so we end up going out of our minds going mm. crazy 
and just feel like, man, if we just wake up and keep going and, you know, if we keep going, we're going to deal with it and, and that's all right. But at, I'm speaking as a current employed right. pastor. Right. Ain't nobody up wow. top in yeah. my administration is checking in on my mental health wow. and saying, yo, you need a sabbatical. Yes. You need to go see a therapist. Yeah. I mean, even if you're not going, just sit down. So that's not encouraged within the whole system. Right. And so we can't do it for our folks. Wow. So sure. when I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Listen, so when I started my practice, Beachstone Counseling, shout out to Beachstone Counseling, go follow it on Facebook, IG, and all that other stuff. But when yeah. I started my practice, I had several different launches. And one of the launches I had specifically was for clergy members. Wow. Right. So I opened my office. I invited the clergy members of my district down here to my office. I'm talking about a lot of them showed up. I had about my office is only 615 square feet packed to the brim, you know, back room chairs stacked. You know, I had food for them or whatever. And the reason why I invited them there was twofold. The first reason was, of course, to make sure that they knew that I was there for them. I'm announcing myself to the community and I wanted them to know that I understand that they are like first responders, 24 seven, 365, always on the job. That's stressful. In fact, I went one even further. I did a presentation for my district when they have their monthly meetings or bi-monthly meetings. I went and I talked about pastoral burnout. So I understand hmm. it. I made myself available to them. After that initial meeting, guess how much I saw from them? Zero. How much? Zero. Wow. I, 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 I didn't see a soul, right? And so um, a part of what I heard, right, because of course, you know, the pastors were there, uh, you know, we got to talking and a part of what was heard after a good majority of them left was that this could never happen because uh, there are whispers that will come from such meetings. And like if we were to do a group, right, and we started talking and it got real, you know, that's a confidential environment. Hmm. People would break hmm. confidentiality based on the Game of Thrones that they played <laughs> in the system. And I was like, man. It blew me away, but uh, I think they were fearful for if they came and they were vulnerable, some people would use that information to politic with, and that's very sad. So without the buy-in of a lot of those pastors, it was hard for me to get the buy-in of the congregation. So so let's 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 transition a little bit, right? So um, there's there's this this buzzword that's been out there for a while, um, and I hear it a lot: uh, generational wealth. Uh, and, and I think that it's important. I think that it's great. And I think that uh, we're probably one of the first generations that'll probably be able to leave something substantial for our kids, right? From the standpoint of wealth, right? Because it's, it's, it, there's a shorter line or shorter distance between, you know, us working and, and retiring and actually being able to leave something substantial for our kids, right? Right. Have you heard of another phrase in the same vein called uh, generational health, meaning, um, so the burdens or the traumas or the things that I've experienced or my parents have experienced or their grandparents have experienced being passed down generationally, like something left in a will for a kid. Oh, yeah. Right. So, so let's, let's shift to trauma, right. And the things that we may have not necessarily experienced, but had, it had a impact on our parents and those things being passed down to us, why is it important or where does mental health come in to try to either uh, 
nip that in the bud or at least equipped you with the tools to address some of those things that you aren't necessarily guilty of, but the things that, or the traumas that your parents or their parents have experienced that may be passed down to you? Oh man, brilliant question. You know, um, this is one of those things that actually attracted me to my field, family therapy. And family therapy could be confusing sometimes. People hear family therapy, they think I only deal with couples, families, and relationships and stuff like that. True, but we also deal with uh, the entire scope of the mental health field. Uh, we, we don't, of course, don't prescribe medication and so forth. But for the most part, we can do uh, psychotherapy uh, and, and, and the array of issues that comes with dealing with psychotherapy. With that said, transgenerational issues, wow, man, that's what it's called. And systems theory, which is based on uh, family therapy, which is based on systems theory, mm -hmm. talks about transgenerational issues. That's that that's one of the first things I found in doing my research on my master. Before I even got into the field, I came across um, one of the pioneers in my field called Murray Bowen. And Murray Bowen introduced me to transgenerational uh, issues through something called a genogram. And every client that comes to my office, they have to do a genogram. Because for me, as a clinician, I want to know what happened in your house of origin. I want to know what happened in your community of origin. I want to know what happened uh, with your parents. Parents, I want to understand those systems because we are a product of those systems. Of course, genetics plays a role in our personalities already. Genetics account for 50 to 70% of our personality. The rest is environmental. The 30 to 50% that's left is environmental. So either way, the environment that our parents grew up, grew up in, played a role in their understanding and their personality and then how they parent us. And then we grew up in a household in an environment that dictated how we were supposed to behave, how we came out. And now that we are parents, if we didn't do what we had to do to deal with our issues, that were transferred over to us from our parents, then we see ourselves repeating a lot of those issues. And what I see when I do a genogram is I see a lot of the trends from a previous generation being followed and mimicked in the second generation. And of course, this is biblical, right? It says visiting the iniquities of the, you got it. You know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so the point of it is that it's, it's transgenerational. It can start with uh, a parent, uh, having issues with substance, right? So abusing substance, meaning they have addictive personality. And then you see addictive personality spread out through the next generation. It's maybe skip a two, and then you'll see addictive personality in the next generation. Or you can see relationship issues from the previous generation, meaning mm -hmm. unstable environments, right? Divorce, separation, domestic violence, substance, a whole bunch of stuff in the previous generation. And you see those things repeated because the environments we grew up in, right? becomes a type of norm for us. It becomes our homeostasis. And so even removed from that environment, we still recreate some of those things unknowingly because that's our homeostasis. Mm -hmm. Another way of saying that is, is that uh, we've normalized a lot of our trauma, right? Yeah. Wow. My brother and I, we used to think that our household was very normal until we started speaking to people years later. And they'd be like, well, that didn't happen to you? That didn't happen <laughs> to your neighborhood? What? For right. real? We used yeah. to tell stories yeah. and people used to think we're talking about Juice, the movie, or, <laughs> or murder was the, you know what I'm saying? What did he show? Like these things happen in real time in our lives in front of our eyes to us, and it impacted us. But it came from a source, our father. You know, if I could speak to him about him just a little bit, 
he grew up without his father. His father died when he was seven. So you're talking about a man who did not have a man in his life to, to grow him up in the way that, you know, he should be affirmed in, you know, in his, in, in his ways as a man. And so not having that, he came in just dialing it in, you know, he did his best with what he had, but what he had wasn't enough to give us what we needed to step into manhood, feeling confident, to step into fatherhood, feeling confident, to step into even, uh, you know, our, our relationship, you know, yeah. into our marriage, feeling confident, you know, and these are transgenerational yeah. issues that if you are not aware, you may need to pause and think and reflect on some of the things that may have happened a few generations ago and then make those changes accordingly by going to see the appropriate professional. Yeah, man. That And so um, that's powerful. And, you know, like you said, like I was thinking when you said, you know, we, we've learned how to normalize this function. I was thinking about I was reading on Frederick Douglass and he was like, man, I never knew I was a slave until I stepped off the plantation. Right. Wow. So some of us don't even realize right. we are in a state of, you know, uh, dysfunction until right. we step out and we see things. But I want so you, 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 McDonald, you brought up generational health, and I, I think that's great. And I've been noticing now in hip hop, they've been more vocal about mental health, primarily Kid Cudi. Yeah. And he has these bars. He says, "Nightmares kept a nigga closing his lids. Since a kid, I've been haunted by visions of death. Such a trip. It's now now it's normal. I'm accustomed to the grip. Think they're gone? Nah, they're just dormant. Them haunters ain't left. Mm. And so like." He's talking about the mental, right. the mental state that he's going through. And I was reading the New York Times, and maybe you could speak on this, but it's saying that in adolescent and in, in black teenagers, that the suicide rate has rapidly increased. And they're saying like 73% from 1991 to 2017, black boys had a significant increase in suicides and injuries from the attempts of suicide. So in your work that you do, Matt, are you um, are you are you beginning to discover these same things like with African Americans, primarily Black men, and even younger? I'm talking about, you know, I don't know if you do adolescent counseling, but yeah. just hearing the thoughts of suicide and these things, and and trying to act out on it, um, in our community. Yeah, man. Um, I got to touch on a couple of things you said because you dropped some jewels in there. <laughs> you, you, you talked about hip hop, man, and hip hop has followed me, man. My brother and I, you know, we tried to shake it off at one period of time in our lives. <laughs> it came back. It was like, we got you, right? It's <laughs> right, right. Couldn't let it go. And so a part of making mental health relevant, I created a page called Hip Hop and Therapy on IG and where mm. I take lyrics from current artists, you know, artists that were popular when I was growing up and, and, and talk about some of the things that they were doing even then and now addressing their mental health concerns. I mean, and the reason why I did that is because, because I wanted the buy-in of this generation, but also men, men, black men specifically, we love us some hip hop. And I think sometimes right. the question is, are we actually listening to the lyrics? Yeah. These individuals have been crying out for help for decades. I'm talking about, go back, you guys name, uh, you know, the name of this, uh, this particular podcast, my mind playing tricks on me. That's one of the first posts I did from the ghetto boys. At night, I can't yeah. sleep. I toss and turn, candlesticks in the dark. It's like my body being burned. Four walls closing in, getting bigger. I'm paranoid, sleeping with my finger on the trigger. Yeah. All that stuff deals with the mental, hmm. you know? Yeah. Like, yeah. listening to the lifestyle, listening to the lifestyle, having observed the lifestyle firsthand, that's a very traumatic lifestyle, and it follows you. Yeah. One of the things that I realized about a lot of the people who grew up 
and urban environments, we suffer from post-traumatic stress. Yeah. yeah. You know, we have the same characteristics. We're always checking, uh, surveying the room when we walk in. Yeah. We don't want people behind us. Don't approach me wrong. What you looking at? You know, all of these are paranoid type of phrases based on the lifestyle that we had to live in yeah. order to make it, you know, through that period of time. And so to answer your question about the adolescent, you know, South Florida has been a one of, I mean, hit hard, man, hit hard for the past year or two with young people ending their lives by suicide. You know, we had a young man in, in Delray and uh, Darefield uh, that ended his life uh, earlier this year. We had um, last year, I think uh, last year as well, there's a couple other kids that ended their lives by suicide. So it, it, it's been plaguing our community, right? Yeah. We have to understand that mental health hasn't been a topic in our community for a very long time. And even though it's being popularized in music, I still fear that people aren't listening to the words that these artists are saying. People would rather hear a tight beat, snap their fingers, throw their neck back, because it's a form of medication. You feel great when you listen to music and it moves you, pumps in dopamine, serotonin, neuro neuropinephrine, all these healthy neurotransmitters, you know, you're feeling good, you're not thinking. So it's a form of escape, even though people are pouring out their pain on track, we're just escaping for that moment. So we're not listening to what they're saying. They're pouring out their trauma. We can relate to it. We're like, yeah, but we're not addressing it. We're not dealing with it at the core. You know, and there is a reason of there are plenty of reasons why mental health has been stigmatized in the black community. But if I could just add one little thing. Right. So Go ahead, way, be way before, you know, mental health was popular at all. You know, this is like before the pioneers of my field even started. There was uh, there were different types of diagnosis. There are different types of terminologies for slaves that had ran away. So from the onset of us being introduced to mental health, it was from a negative connotation, right? The word I'm looking for is called drapo, drapotomania, right? Yeah. Talking about a, a runaway slave, like, how dare you? You must have lost your mind. You think you're going to find a better life than this. You must be crazy for leaving mm -hmm. this circumstance because where else can you go to find a better deal than this, right? right? Right. And so that's wow. just one aspect. And then there's the trust, mistrust relationship with African-Americans and medical professionals at, at, you know, in general. You got the Tuskegee stuff. You got the cholera in Haiti. And so there's a bunch of mistrust with medical professionals and the African-American community. A lot of misdiagnosis on our black men, our black boys, a lot of prescribed medication that doesn't really help but cause or perpetuate the issue even further, neglecting what has actually happened and labeling people based on a, a lack of understanding of the community issues and systemic issues. And so, yes, yeah, when I first got introduced to uh, mental health, I'm like, nah, I'm good. You know, in fact, in my first session, when I went, I lied the entire session. <laughs> it's like, I don't know you and I don't trust you. Right. right? Yeah. And so, you know, it took a while to let, let, let that guard down to actually get it out. But once I got it out, man, the benefits were automatic, automatic. Yeah. You're talking about a young brother that never smiled. Now I can't stop yeah. smiling. You know, I, I yeah, have. And it's like, yeah, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I cut you off. Yeah. Um, but it's like you said, man, it's this, there's this burden of the black man and this burden that's on the black man. And, right. you know, I'm just speaking like personally and just thinking in general of terms that, there's this burden on us for us to be stronger than we really are. 
And, you know, so like if I ask McDonald, like, yo, how you doing? He going to say I'm good. But right. deep down inside, he ain't good. You know what I'm saying? But it's still that burden to not look weak. Um, it's that burden that America has casted on us to not get angry, to not be emotional, but to just have a straight face. And so, you know, I kind of understand in some ways why we don't seek out mental health. But then I but then I don't understand that it's killing us. Right. Because if we not. If we ain't smoking drugs, if we ain't right, smoking right. some weed, we ain't drinking some alcohol, we trying to medicate our misery, but it's killing us and it's killing our women too yeah. because we're not dealing or addressing our issues mm. because of this burden that's on the shoulders of just African-American men in America. So look, so so it's funny you mentioned that and you talked about, you know, your personal, um, you know, struggles dealing with that too. Uh, I think, so I brought up the whole generational health thing, right? Um, my biggest fear um, as I grew into manhood was becoming a father, right? And 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 let's go back to the whole, my father not having a father and losing his father at seven and so forth, right? My biggest fear has always been, had, had always been having kids and being in a position to make decision about another human life, right? And the fear wasn't necessarily because I didn't think that I would be able to at least figure it out on some level to be able to support my kids. It was more so repeating some of the things that my siblings and I experienced as, as, as kids growing up, right? Things that we took into adulthood that now impact our marriages, our relationship with people, the lack of trust, um, the constantly, you know, being quick to cut people off, because you know, you you do me wrong once and it's a wrap, right? Yeah. Because you, you you won't get a second chance, right? And so, um, about maybe a month now, a month and a half. This is like my third or fourth session. I made a decision to go to to seek therapy, and I remember, I remember driving. So I set it up and, and made it, made the appointment. I remember driving all the way to Dallas. So I had a long time to really, you know, turn around really quick and decide not to go through with it, right? And I got there early. And so I sat in the parking lot and I'm thinking of all the reasons why I could potentially jet and get out of there. But in my mind, I kept playing like, yo, I already see the manifestation of the mistakes and the things that my father had done and mm -hmm. you know the very things that I've been trying to run from were things that I've, I've been repeating in my relationship with my son. And so I was like, man, if I leave today, if I decide to walk away right now, I'm probably gonna pass on, if I hadn't already, pass on some of those things that I dreaded picking up from my, from my father onto my son. And he's gonna do the same yeah. thing with his kids. And so I sat there and I remember in the uh, session, I, I, I wanted to do the exact same thing you did, Matt, where I wanted to just completely fabricate everything, the, every question that, that the counselor asked me. And I thought to myself, well, I'm paying good money to be here. First of all, I also drove damn near an hour to be there just to lie. And right. I was like, nah, that's probably not going to work. And the crazy thing about it was when I left the session, there was like this this immediate wow. rock, if I can use that metaphorically, that was strapped to my back that just was that just got released. Wow. And it was the most freeing feeling 
there, there that I, I think I'd ever felt. And I'm not saying that, you know, everyone's experience is going to be the same. And I'm not saying everyone is, is, is going to come across a therapist the first time that they've encountered them. And it's just going to be this, this utopian um, situation. But what I am saying is overcoming the hump of whatever that fear or the, the, or the the reasoning as to why you decide that you don't want to go overcoming that initial hump and actually trying it out, I think was one of the smartest choices that I'd ever made. And I've been going ever since. So most people that probably know me would probably never imagine that I would be doing something like that, right? Because I got to keep this cool factor about me. But I think how super cool is it that I'm shedding myself of all the curses and and generational things that I'm that I'm carrying right now that I'm imposing on my son, how cool would it be to just shake all that off? Wow. You know what I'm saying? So yeah. to your point, Jamie, uh, having to put on this I'm strong face, I'm, you know, I'm the man and I don't ever show weakness and all these different things. I think that's the reason why we're dying so early. Mm. Right. And if I, if I can put it bluntly. Yeah. And then the other thing too, man, is I want to say this to everybody watching on Facebook, uh, everybody watching on um, on YouTube, and you know maybe we're gonna put this up on Instagram. Let me say this: Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube are not your therapist. Like you, <laughs> you pouring stuff out on Facebook is not therapy. Okay, nah, like you getting advice from only the people you like right. is not therapy. And I think you know, man, I'm beginning to see people are trying to use social media as their therapist right and then you know the other problem too is that they're only listening to the people that they like or who like their post or whatever right. so i mean i just want to throw that out there like so one, to one, go to a, a therapist so, so one thing i'll say for people that are watching if you are like a licensed therapist or you are someone that works in that field and i think we have a few in the chat um if you know of resources in your local area that you think might be beneficial to somebody that may watch this later, go ahead and put it in the comments and we can maybe Facts. make this three, this thread um, you know, live on and people can come back and, and find resources. that Or, can, or, or tag that person right now. Yeah. That they will find this and you know, find it, find the stream um, whenever they get a chance to come back. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Facts. Yeah. Facts. Yeah. So, so Matt, let me ask you this question, man. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm a 22, 25-year-old dude living in the hood. I don't have no job. I ain't got no health insurance, but I know I'm, yo, I need to talk to somebody. How does somebody who doesn't have health insurance or doesn't have the resources, how can they seek, where, where do they go to seek help if there is any help? For there them? is. There is always help. There's always help. And let me say this, man. Therapy ain't, therapy ain't cheap, you know? Therapy right. is not cheap. You come to me, I'm not cheap. Uh, but your your mental health should not be cheap. You know, you shouldn't put a price tag on it. Uh, like we pay for almost every other leisures in our lives. And then when it comes to our mental health or emotional health, we, you know, it's like, oh, I don't got it. You do got it. You just have to make sure you budget correctly to make sure you can maintain it. You know, it's one of those mm -hmm. investments that like McDonald's says, start paying off immediately. Yeah. You no. Know, so uh, I always encourage my my clients to listen. Make that investment in yourself. You know. Um, but to answer the question, there are plenty of resources available for those who don't have insurance uh, and and may not have the funds for it. You know, somebody just put Switchboard of Miami, which is a great resource. Two one one down here, 
and I think it's in Broward okay. and Palm Beach. But most colleges and universities that have a mental health program usually have uh, little to no cost mental health programs where they have their graduate students that can see people for very low uh, cost, right? And then outside of that, there are plenty of therapists, myself included, that does something called a sliding scale, you know? For me, my personal motto is I don't turn anyone away. If they're brave enough to say, I need help, I'm gonna work with them, That's to, dope. Get them in, to get them the services that they need, you know? And yeah. I've, I've done pro bono work before in my community. I know other therapists that have done pro bono work. So it's nothing. Like if a black man can raise his voice to say, look, man, I need help, you know? And if they can say that yeah. to me, I'm like, I got you. What can I do to help you out? My pledge is that yeah. I'm the therapist I needed 15 to 20 years ago. So if that young brother's coming to my office, I see myself and I got you. You know, I'm gonna make this a safe space for you. You know, what I'm saying? I had one brother came in, came in, and he was using finances as a reason why he had to leave. You know, he's like, man, I don't got it no more. It's like, man, you know, my funds are really low. I don't have the. I was like, look, man, just pay a dollar. Just pay a right. dollar right now. You know, if you could pay a dollar per session, I did that for two reasons, of course, to make sure that he felt like he was buying into it. But I try, I was trying to show him that, look, man, you don't have a reason to leave. This is way more important than than a lot of things that you think that you have to pay for. But if you feel that those things are priority, I'm gonna make it that much more easy for you to invest in yourself. He reached out to me years later. He's like, man, you gave me the greatest gift with those dollar sessions. So make it work. I actually have a question for you. And this is more so related to what's going on right now. So we're talking about trauma and this pandemic, right? How do you think that this pandemic will impact people from the standpoint of, of a mental health, like, I guess, from a mental health space, like, how do you see this, this whole thing going on impacting folks uh, coming out of this? Yeah, wow. So uh, thanks, Terry, for posting that as well. That's a really great resource. So let's talk about what stress and anxiety does to the body, right? Mm -hmm. Stress and anxiety, stress releases the hormone called cortisol, and anxiety releases adrenaline and cortisol. A lot of people are experiencing, uh, I'll get to that question in a second. They asked, what's the sliding scale? A lot someone, of answered people, it. someone answered it in the, in the okay, comments. Cool, cool, yeah. cool. So a lot of people are, are experiencing this uh, for the first time because it's heightened. You know, I think we've, we've, we've all dealt with a level of stress and anxiety that we are used to, right? We, we understand our capacity. I can go up right about here before, you know, um, you know before I, I lose it. But right up here, I'm, I'm, I'm in trouble. So a lot of people are, are just going right above or even peaking, going way beyond what they're used to, their level of stress and anxiety. And what stress and anxiety does to the body is really messed up, right? The, 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 the hormone cortisol, when it releases in the body, it causes all types of negative effects. One of those, it causes salt and sweet cravings. So a lot of the fat reserves that we have is based on stress eating adrenaline. When, that, when that's pumped into your body and, and, and access, when, when it goes above the regular amount that our body's used to, it, it causes us to phase from uh, a calm state to an alert state to an alarm state to a, to a fearful state to a terrified state. And hmm. each state of awareness or arousal causes us to diminish our level of IQ that we can put out. So right now, all three of us are in a calm state. We hear a gunshot. You know, maybe, maybe now, because I've been removed from that, you know, <laughs> far removed, right? Yeah, I'm far removed from it. I'm gonna be like, what was that? Right. 
And even in that small instance, when adrenaline spikes in my body, my, my IQ diminishes at least by 10, you know? Wow. So what, what we're used to dealing with is using the full capacity of our IQs. But now if we're in a fearful state, if we're in a fearful state, we're using only about to like 60 to 70% of our IQ. So we have a lot of behaviors that people are displaying based on their levels of stress and anxiety that are not normal. And it's causing a lot of conflict, a lot of miscommunication, a lot of anger, a lot of sadness, a lot of uncontrolled uh, physical pain, even it manifests itself in our necks and our backs. We're stressed. And so a lot of us are dealing with this for the first time. And if we were not used to tapping into a resource like a mental health source in your community, this is not this is not going to be our first uh, um, place that we go. We will go to what we are used to. And a lot of us are used to taking care of it in-house. You know, we self-medicate, we drink, we smoke, we party, we have sex. All of these things could be healthy, of course, in, you know, in, in moderation. But when you use it to self-medicate, it automatically puts it in a, in a space where it's not good for you because you're only masking, not addressing the issue full head, you know, head on. You're only masking for a little bit. And then as soon as you come down from it, you feel the brunt of all of it right over again. And it doesn't do anything for you. So yeah, there's Matt, um yeah, yeah, just um just real quick, uh, mm -hmm. Matt, you know, I now I'll I'll put this out there, man. Stress shut down my immune system. Wow. Um, and just with trying to do a whole bunch of things that it put me in the hospital. Wow. And you know, and, and I was in there for like a whole week because I was so stressed out with trying to manage work, school, family, and just all these different things. So that's another contributor. And which I'm fearful as the question that McDonald asked in regards to our people who live in our community who already, you know, um, I think I was reading an article and it said racism as a stressor, oh. that black people dealing with racism is a stressor that contributes to poor health outcomes. Hmm. And so when you take COVID-19 with the stress that we deal with of racism, of just our neighborhoods of gunshots going off. When you said, you know, that rate that lowers our IQ, and then you add, you add in, you got to stay in your house. You can't even get fresh air, right. and you, you do start medicating your misery with right. with with malt. You you're not even buying good liquor. You buying malt liquor, <laughs> bottom <laughs> shelf, bottom shelf, not top shelf, <laughs> bottom shelf, top stuff. shelf brown liquor. Yeah, you know, killing ourselves, man. So that's that's facts, man, about stress, man. That's yeah. big facts. Yeah. yeah. So so there was an aspect of, of this whole thing that I thought about and I was talking to somebody about it that I don't think is getting a lot of attention, uh, which is homes that were already um, yeah. jail cells or death traps for abuse. And now people are confined to those to those prisons. Right. I guess. What advice would you give to somebody that's in a situation like that, considering what the, the the black cloud that we're under? Like, I mean, so women that are in abusive relationships, kids or or whoever that's in being molested or those types of things. Like, I guess, what would you say to people going through that right now? Get help immediately. Like if it's a situation where there is abuse don't call your therapist, call 911. You know what I'm saying? That's that's number one. Yeah. And I feel uh as if like if 
if it's a situation where you may need to, where it can be managed, right? Where, you know, it's, it's dire, but it's not, you know, physical abuse, sexual abuse and, and stuff like that. If it's just verbal, uh, mental, emotional, and so forth, where it's a very toxic relationship, definitely seek out a mental health professionals. There are tons of mental health professionals that are surfacing to the top right now. And it's not that we weren't there, but I think we, we are becoming more apparent in our communities based on the growing need for mental health support throughout this time. I'm talking about being bombarded with calls, inundated with calls throughout the weekend. My phone blows up. I have messages in my uh, inboxes about people that need assistance, that this thing is tearing families apart. Hmm. So seek professional help as soon as you can. But like I said, I'm going to go backwards again, because a lot of these things are never addressed starting the relationship. There aren't a lot of people that actually go and make the investment of premarital counseling before they get married or before they even say, you know, I'm going to move in with the person, you know, and so they just jump into it without the appropriate resources. You know, if you're building anything together, there has to be uh, some type of orientation to what the relationship will be like, the do's and the don'ts. And unfortunately for a lot of people, they don't go to therapy before, sometimes even during by the time they get to my office, it's already, uh, you know, this is the last ditch effort for us, man. If we don't get it right this time, it's done, you know. And it's not that you can't get the help then, but it's way more work to do intervention than it is to do prevention. And so what I would say uh, uh, is if we, when we, when we do come out of this, make mental health a priority, not just for the individual, not just for the couple, but for the family, for the entire system, make this a priority. Make sure that we're checking in with each other, checking in with our kids. Oh man, checking with your kids, your adolescent kids, check in with them. Make sure that we are a safe space. And I wish I had time because I can get into what the safe space is to have conversations at this level about mental health in the home and so forth. So make it a priority. Yeah. yeah. So, 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 so Matt, uh, I'm sorry, you had a question, McDonald? Yeah, so this was one from earlier that that I didn't get to that. Um, so the, the average person, you know, that may feel like they're all right, don't have any issues. How do you know that, you, how do you even know that you need to seek help? Like what, what, what signs do you need to have in order for you to know that you should probably uh, go see a professional? Mm-hmm. Side note, my man Cliff is dropping jewels in the, in the, in the comment sections. Right <laughs> Cliff. My yeah. boy from Detroit, listen, man, you dropping some nuggets in there for real. Talk about Dr. Chapman. Uh, symptoms, right? We talk about what are some of the things that a person can identify in their lives that on their relationship to let them know they need therapy, right? So even that, man, a lot of the issues that we face in our relationship, we've normalized. We've normalized. These things have become normal for us, and so we've created systems of chaos. And so it may it may not be that we could even identify it because our quality of life have been so poor for such a long time, that's what we're used to. I had a client that came to me after she left uh, abusive relationship, verbal, physical, and so forth. And I asked her one of the questions, I asked her a question, I said, why did you stay so long? And her answer was, that's what women do. Wow. Right, that's what women do. So it, it's become an, a, almost a rite of passage to go through, some, go through some of these things without fully addressing them, you know? And so just by uh, putting out some information, one of the, some of the things we should look for is when it starts to impact your quality of life, meaning 
for a court for a period of two weeks, when you start to see a diminish in your quality of life, in your, uh, you know, your spiritual, your mental, your financial, your social, your relational, when you start to sleep more, eat less, you know, when you don't want to have relationships, when you feel like the weight of the world is on your shoulder, for like, you know, and you're just carrying it, when you, when, when, you know, when you start to even experience physical, you know, illness as a result of not addressing the things that are going on, when you're medicating without cause of medication for real, you know, when you are fighting uncontrollably, when you can't communicate effectively with the people you care about, when you, when you're not showing up on the job motivated, when you're not showing up at all, when you're failing your classes, you know, your college classes, when you're not interested in spiritual matters, the list goes on and on and on. But the main criteria is that it's lingering for two weeks or more. So if this is something that you've experienced last week, this week, the week before, and it's ongoing, then you definitely need to seek out a mental health professional. Nope. Yeah. Yeah, man. That's that's good advice, man. That's real great advice. And I just hope that those listening and our people in our community, um, you know, take advantage of it while they can before we go and do something that's detrimental, not just to ourselves, but to others and primarily our children. Like I know for me, it reached a tipping point where, you know, when I got sick and I always knew I needed to see a therapist. But when I got sick, I was just like, man, I can't have this happen no more. Mm -hmm. As you stated, Matt, um, I was coming home and acting. I was, you know, kind of angry, man, like for no reason. And, you know, my daughters are, are nine and seven and I'm snapping at them and I'm snapping at my wife. And that just said to me, nah, something got to change. You know, mm -hmm. something's got to flip. And, you know, I just strongly believe that being black and living in America or just being black, you grow up with stress. Hmm. Um, and there is a lot of trauma that you have witnessed just by the color, just because of the color of your skin. And there's something else that I had noticed, man, when I have like a lot of white friends, white people brag about their therapy. Yep. <laughs> you know, they speed down. Like, yeah, they speed down. Have my therapy right. speed down. Right. That's right. That's right. Let me check with my therapist first. You know, like they are, they are, they are all in that. And, and they're even willing to get the therapy and the extra help for their children. So, you know, like even when, um, even when it comes to something that their children need to help them advance, to be more advanced to others, they will go get that in a heartbeat. So if an educator comes and says to a black parent, like, yo, I think your child, you know, may need some, they need some counseling services or some help in this area. Black people quick to write it off. Like, what are you trying to say? Something wrong with my child? Da, 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 and not taking advantage of those resources, man. And so, you know, I hope that we just really take this conversation seriously. You you mentioned something, and I don't know if you can hit on it in the next few minutes, but what does a safe space look like? And right. how, how do you create that? Right, 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 right. So, oh, man, great question. Uh, I wanted to touch on one thing based on what you just said. Resilience is one of yeah. the things that we have in our black community. And that word is one of the buzzwords that we use in the black community, the Haitian community, West Indian community. Black people are resilient. Yeah, we are, which is great. You know, I love it. I am resilient and so forth. But when you look at the definition of resilience, it's not separate from trauma. Wow. Mm. wow. So to, in order to even be labeled as resilient, there's trauma that's attached to that specific thing. You know, I'm resilient because of that. You've been through something. And a lot of times we keep the label resilience, but we don't deal with the traumatic experiences that allowed us 
to be labeled as resilience, hmm. as resilient, mm. you know? So that has to be something that we don't negate. Yes, we are resilient. Address the uh, the trauma that allowed us to be resilient. And, you know, we can name a whole bunch of them. Safe spaces. Glad you asked. You know, uh, this is like a good form to uh, give this analogy. You know, when they get, when we get in the church, they say, let's set the atmosphere. Let's set the atmosphere, right? <laughs> and Jamie, you know, uh, I've heard you speak. Dynamic speaker, man. I, lo I, love, I love when you speak. So and I Jamie laughed because he's guilty. Right. We got to set the atmosphere. So, but let's talk about that really quick, right? Because that atmosphere we're talking about, right? That atmosphere is for several reasons. The, the first reason, well, you know, one of the reasons is because we want people to be in an appropriate state to receive a message. Right. Mm -hmm. When we set that atmosphere, people are aligning to be able to receive something from whoever's speaking. Right. And then that same atmosphere has to be conducive to the messenger to deliver that message. So you have the recipient who has to be prepared to hear that message based on the atmosphere. And you have the deliverer who has to be equally aligned with the audience to deliver that message. Right. Yeah. I think a lot of the times we miss the opportunity to create safe spaces, atmospheres of safety for those that we are in communication with. What does that look like? That looks like understanding what I need to speak at a level of emotional truth and vulnerability. Right. I have yeah. to understand what I need as a black man to communicate those things. Right. What do I need? What does that atmosphere look like? And that's just not a physical space. It's a, you know, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Metaphysical space, even, you know, mm -hmm. it's an aura. It's an essence that we can create by manipulating an environment, by adding one or two things, by subtracting one or two things. Let's go outside. Let's go for a walk. Do you want to talk, you know, this space is this, when's a good time for you, right? Mm -hmm. And we know how to do this because we've done this in other spaces, in educational spaces, when we have meetings, we prepare the atmosphere. We do that so that we can deliver a message and people that are there can receive a message effectively. We need to be aware of the atmospheres we need in our households to communicate with our kids, to communicate with our significant others, and even to listen to ourselves. Like, what do I need? What environment do I need to actually ask myself what's been going on with me mentally, emotionally, and physically? Yeah. So so yeah. check this out, right? So, so go ahead, Jamie. You had something to say to that? Yeah, real quick, man. I like what you said, especially like one thing I want the audience to know is that church is not therapeutic. It's more of an opioid. And the reason why I say that is because mm. we come in there and we use it as a drug mm. to ignore what we're going through and then we leave the same way. So, you wow. know, to negate the people out there that think that, oh, I'm coming to church and I'm right. going to get my fix. No, right. you are just really, it's, it's just another form of medicating your misery like alcohol, you know, like a drug where you because there is no there's no human contact at church. It's just one person speaking to other people right. and you're bringing in the same stress and the same trauma. So right. I just want to throw that out there. McDonald. Um, yeah. So, so I was going to say, so I think everyone has some level of influence in your circle, your surroundings, the people that you come in contact with. Um, one thing I did immediately after I, I, I got I did made the decision to go to therapy was that I told everyone in my circle, everyone and people that I would have never had, would have guessed would have been responsive to it were receptive and actually made decisions to actually go seek counseling themselves. Um, I think 
the more that we put the word out there, the more. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, McDonald got paused a little bit. What I think he's trying to say is the more we put the word out, um, right. you know, the more talking about therapy, the people, people will be aware. Um, McDonald, yeah. Say what you say again. It, it got paused a little bit. Yeah. So my apology, I was just saying. So so I think that it's important that we all have a responsibility on some level to um, talk more about it. Right. So the way we talk about your favorite song, your favorite shoe, your favorite whatever this and that. I think that we need to have those kinds of conversations on a day to day basis. Like we got to make it cool to talk about, yo, I'm in therapy like, yo, this is what I'm struggling with. Or, or sometimes I think it may also be the fact that we need to be vulnerable in a sense to basically put it out there that, look, I'm struggling. I'm not perfect. Like we walk around with these images of perfection all the time. We put on our nice suits and put on our, ni our nice clothes and we walk out and we show the world that we have it all together when in fact we're dying inside. And if I can convince at least one of my friends to, to make a decision to address something that they may be dealing with in a mental health space, I already won. So that's, that's my mindset. That's, that's what I got to say. Yeah. Big facts, big facts, Matt, man, any final words? How can the people get in contact with you? Um, you know, yo, first of all, man, just, yo, you are, you are a dope dude, man. You, get, real. you need to have like a, a stand. You are officially you know? a dope dude. Oh, I appreciate that, man. <laughs> appreciate it, man. So how can the people contact you? Oh, listen, man. Uh, advocacy work is something that is done not by people with three, four, five degrees, but it's grassroots. It's done by everyday Joe and Jane's, Tisha and, and, and Ramon. It's done by them. So, you know, once we get the word out, if it's impacted our lives, then make sure you be, you become an advocate as well. Each one, teach one, you know? And so uh, people see me and, and my gear all the time, Sober Words, I'm repping the hat and, and the hoodie right now. This is a company I started to fight stigma against substance abuse and mental health. And this is something that I feel that is an easy way to spark conversations. Everywhere I go, if somebody see the hat on me, the, the shirt on me, they see the word sober, it's a triggering word, automatic, we start having a conversation. The more conversations we have, the more stigma de declines and decrease to where people can feel safe enough to speak about their issues. Somebody put a dope definition about what safety is in the, in the feed. I hope you guys read it. But safety comes from speaking and, and, and feeling safe enough to speak about our issues. And so you can all, always reach me at Matt Genius, and all of my different pages are there. So I would say for everyone to reach me there first. And then if you see a page that you're interested in, which is uh, the Beachstone Counseling, which is my private practice, hip hop and therapy, which I talk about music and, and, and uh, mental health, sober words, which fight stigma against substance abuse and mental health. You can find all of those at Matt Genius on IG. Fellas, I appreciate you guys having me. I hope this was uh, just as much fun as it was for me for you guys as well. Well, yo, it, it was it was great, man. I think the folks, I mean, based on the comments that I saw, I think the folks were really um really interested. I think, man, this conversation is worth having again. Yeah. So don't be surprised um if we, you know, we call you up and be like, look, man, we need we need to continue this a little bit further. All right. Listen, man, Matt Genius can be the resident therapist for two dope dudes. So you got me. Let's do it. Oh, man. Oh, man. We, we receive it. The jizza. We got the jizza with yeah. us, man. <laughs> All right, man. Well, that's it for us, man. So we we appreciate everybody joining, man. Share this post.
put it on your timeline. You know, if you guys have any additional questions, feel free to either inbox myself or Jamie, uh, and we can definitely get the uh, questions over to Matthew if you can't reach him. And uh, we'll go from there, man. But we'll see you guys next time. We out. We out. Two dope dudes. Three really dope dudes. Ah. Uh. <laughs>